Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 330, recorded December 7th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 132. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by the Newegg Gadget Trade-In site powered by Gazelle. Trade in your used gadgets today at newegg.com slash trade and receive a Newegg gift card. That's newegg.com slash trade. And by Ford, featuring available voice-activated Sync. Sync gives you versatile access to music, podcasts, and more from just about any device. Check it out in the new 2012 Ford Focus and at ford.com slash technology. And by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continual, and unlimited backup for your computer files for only $59 a year. Try it free at carbonite.com and use offer code SECURITYNOW and get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show you need to watch if you want to stay safe on the Internet because of this man, the guy from GRC.com, spin right shields up, all kinds of good stuff. Mr. Steve Gibson with us today as usual, but I'm with you today as not usual. Leo Laporte's out in France. Pleasure to be with you again on Security Now, Steve. Likewise, Tom. We always have a good time, and, and you've got the whole beat down for the podcast so and somehow it always seems to you land on the even episodes which are our q a episodes so, i love I mean, the q a episodes you've done non q a i think one once or twice but generally it happens that you're on the q a so yeah i lucked out i got to be on the how one of the how the internet works episodes which was fantastic those that was that was a great tutorial series uh and i like the q a episodes too because they're little samples uh, of lots of different stuff yeah, it's funny because i'm I guess I'm really more conscious of the continuity that we have from one episode to the next. And like, for example, there's some things here that I'm aware that that I would like Leo to know. Oh, yeah. Because it'd be nice to have that for the future. And it's like, well, okay, Tom's going to know this, but Leo's not going to know this. So, you know, our, our listeners all know it, but, you know, it helps when the person I'm working with also knows it. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot, well, Leo's gonna miss this but i'll sort of try to remember that he doesn't know that or he'll say something or he, he could watch the show if he's listening yeah he's not <laughs> he gonna. might be listening right now going i'm hearing you steve uh, i'm getting it all so. he's in france he's <laughs> not listening to the security now podcast <laughs> probably not he's probably asleep no. but he could listen to it later on the podcast uh we got some uh, zero day flaws uh some dns crypts to talk about a banking Trojan, and of course your questions and answers. Uh, but before we, we get started, I want to thank uh, one of our sponsors for today's episode, Ford. Uh, this show is brought to you by Ford featuring voice-activated Sync. Sync gives you versatile access to music, podcasts, and more from just about any device. Check it out in the new 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com slash technology. Access music and podcasts for most devices, including your iPod, your mobile phone, your tablet, your flash drive. Pretty much anything that's got, uh, a, 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 if you got a mini jack, you can you can plug it in. 
Play videos or display photos from your digital camera or portable game device when you're in park because you don't want to be doing that while you're driving. You want to stay, stay driving safe. But you're sitting and waiting. Watch a little video while you're waiting in the parking lot. All made possible through the versatile Media Hub, which supports a convenient variety of devices. Uh, anything with a USB port, SD slot, Bluetooth, or like I mentioned, the RCA jack. Uh, just connect your devices and play. And then you can use Sync's voice commands to tell it what to do. Play some rock and roll. Uh, play some John Mayer or don't ever play play John Mayer, whatever, wherever your tastes lie. Uh, you can tell it what to do. Also available is my Ford Touch HD Radio. What's cool about that, because it's HD Radio, they have some meta information embedded that allows them to track what song is listening. You can tell it, hey, I like that song. Uh, t- tag that and save it. And then you can transfer that song to your iPod by buying it from the iTunes store directly from iTunes. Uh, you, you buy it once you get out of the car. Sync's versatile entertainment features are available in the 2012 Ford Focus. And you can learn more about this and other technologies at Ford.com slash technology. We thank them for their support of security now. Let's get into the news, uh, Steve. Uh, start. We always like you always seem to start with a zero day something. We have a zero well, day flaw in Adobe Reader this week. Adobe gives us so much to work with. <laughs> yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, my goodness. Um, <laughs> so the big news is that Adobe alerted the security followers, the security industry, to their detection of a zero-day, a new zero-day flaw in Adobe's Reader and Acrobat products. Um, so what they're seeing is they're seeing... This, you know, because it's zero day, meaning the first time they learned about it was someone reported that this was actually being exploited. So there are flaws in not only the current version, which is 10.1.1 and all earlier. So um, these are being used in targeted attacks where um, email is being sent containing a PDF which is deliberately malformed in order to take advantage of a um, a weakness in the security in the in the handling of some aspect of PDF documents. Now, what's significant is that the new version ten of Reader and Acrobat has the so-called protected mode, or in Acrobat, that's called protected view, and. In this case, those new protected modes have mitigated the problem. The problem exists in these versions, but it can't get out. It cannot do the damage that it can in the in the pre-version 10 releases. So, so, you, so you still want to update version 10 to get rid of this? Well, actually, Adobe's not even going to make it available. No, they're not. Okay. Well, then yeah. never mind. They're that confident that this does, that their containment technology does keep it corralled. No, that was a perfect question to ask. What, so what Adobe is going to do is they will be updating to fix this problem in the version 10 line, but they're not going to do it in an emergency fashion. It'll be their regular quarterly update schedule, gotcha. which for a change, they're going to stick with. They haven't been ever sticking with it until now, but in this case... This exploit, which is not to say that all exploits, but this one does get contained by their containment technology that they introduced in version 10. What they are going to do, though, is an emergency release, which they have committed to have uh, available 
for all version 9 and prior versions of Reader and Acrobat no later than the week of December 12th. So what we're in the week of December 5th, so it'll, that is to say, so no longer than next week, the week following this podcast, there will be an emergency release from Adobe they have promised to fix this problem because it's a bad one for people who did not move up to 10.x of, of uh, Reader and Acrobat. It's another good so, example of why you should maintain updates and always use the latest version. Yeah, and you know there are there are largely in corporate settings there are there's more inertia because they're feeling like well we already know what version nine does and it's mm-hmm. working and, and and there's my I'm I'm famous for my reticence to move to the latest and greatest because oftentimes you just end up with some different shaped arrows in your back. You know, I'm I'm still using XP and I look over here and I see that we have 852 days left of support for Windows XP. So I'm not in a big hurry. Um, although I have seen some things in the news that talked about Windows. Oh, in fact, it was, it was a little blurb that didn't quite make my 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 notes for this week because it wasn't anything spectacular but it mentioned that that and i was wondering what the source of this was it's probably windows i mean microsoft because there was some mention that had rsa been using windows 7 rather than windows xp windows the, the security inherent in windows 7 would have prevented the exploitation of the flaw which is what compromised the RSA mm-hmm. uh, secure ID keys, um, the, which we covered extensively some time ago. So it's like, okay, well, that's good for them. But we do know that Windows XP is still the majority platform on the Internet. That is, Microsoft is not, in general, succeeding in getting people to move off of XP because, you know, they're all stick in the muds like me for whom XP is still doing everything I need. So... And you know it's nice to let a few service packs get get out there on a new OS before you jump to it. So, and which, which you know was the was the case with Windows Seven? There were new security problems with Windows Seven, which have now been resolved. But suffice so. to say, when there's a when there's an update for security, make oh, sure oh, make oh. sure you implement it. That's that's, yes, yes, that's yes. what I was trying to. Yes, to get. and uh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't you know. For for our listeners, typical end users, or maybe people in corporations who can can work to drag their companies forward, mm-hmm. th- th- certainly being up at at Adobe Reader ten. I mean, it's free. Why wouldn't you be using ten yeah. versus nine? Unless and you're using this- Foxit or something, and yeah. <laughs> and don't have the problem at all. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take a let's take a, a move on to the Open DNS uh, DNS Crypt beta for Mac users. I thought this was uh, really interesting. Uh, uh, it's a uh, documented DNS encryption scheme. What's this about? Well, so this is only for Open DNS um, users. So you have to be um, using the Open DNS service that uh, to to serve your domain names. Yeah. So what they've done is. This is not a. This is not an internet standard. This is not DNSSEC. Mm-hmm. This uh, DNSSEC, which is 
still not widely available. We've we've covered it in detail uh, in previous podcasts. It provides um, spoofing detection and authentication of a, a, a essentially secure signing of DNS records, which allow somebody who makes a DNS query. Now, again, this is DNS sec. This is not what I'm talking about with Open DNS and DNS Crypt, I wanted to make sure sh- I wanted to, to, to draw the distinction. Though. Yeah, we so, just want to understand what DNSSEC is, so we can tell the difference, right? Right. And so it provides a means of of signing DNS records, so that the recipient of a DNS query can can absolutely cryptogra- with cryptographic security verify. The correct that that the record they received is the record that was signed by the record's owner, the authoritative owner and distributor of that DNS record, and not being served by immigration and customs enforcement. Say, precisely, not altered in any fashion. Yeah. So what open what the Open DNS company has done is, and this is just sort of random. I mean, I'm not sure. Why they did it? Uh, they're so certainly they're looking for ways of of inducing more people to use their service. Yeah. And so here's a new feature. The way to and, think and of this we don't, is, and is, we should point out we don't have DNSSEC rolled out yet. Right. Right. And so, it's a, I mean the 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 root servers were only just recently signed, mm-hmm. so those records are signed. But in general. The availability of DNSSEC is is virtually non-existent. It's like IPv6. It's so maybe like, this is okay, a band, band-aid to get us by until DNSSEC is fully rolled out. I don't know. No, this, this is, this uh, is the way to the way to think. <laughs> yeah, the way to think of this is a feature that one DNS provider, Open DNS, is has now in beta. Only for Mac users. So if you're a Mac user and you are using OpenDNS or you like you and or you're a Mac user and you like the idea enough that this would move you to OpenDNS, then you've done what they really want, which is moved to OpenDNS. So what this is, is this is point-to-point encryption of DNS records between a Mac running the OpenDNS DNS client, meaning you have to run something special on your Mac side in order to make this point-to-point encrypted, encrypted connection to the OpenDNS servers. So this isn't going to work on a router. Well, correct. You have it to run it on the on the actual machine. Yes. So so the idea is, you know, normally your your um, Mac would, and that that's a very good point. Um, you you could not have your router configured to use OpenDNS, and then have your Mac receive the the you know have have your router do the queries on behalf of mm-hmm. of the network. Now, no, mo- most routers are not generating dns queries themselves they're merely offering the dns ips to the machines on the network 
and then those machines make the queries. So so that would still work. Um, so um, the idea would be if you've got a Mac and you're running this open DNS beta for Mac users only, then you, then a a low weight that is a a a, a um, and a relatively inexpensive to establish encrypted query is made to OpenDNS, and then an encrypted reply is received. So, so what does this do? This, more than anything, this gives you privacy, which is something that even DNSSEC won't do. DNSSEC gives us verifiability and authentication, but specifically not privacy. It, DNSSEC does not encrypt, e even when it's eventually deployed, it's not encrypted. So, so this does give you point-to-point -point privacy. This means that in, a, in an open Wi-Fi environment, like in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a Starbucks where you don't have any encryption key on your wireless, anybody sniffing your your connections will be able to see all of your DNS queries. They'll see what sites you're looking up and by your query and the IPs of those sites coming back to you. They just can't so, interfere in that case, right? And and perform a man in the middle attack because it's it's a signed yeah, domain name. Um yeah, th that's one of the things Probably. this is supposed to 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 prevent and actually i have a question about whether mm -hmm. it does that it prevents man in the middle because i don't see how it can i haven't looked at it in depth because you know this is it, it's in beta at the moment and for example you have to re-enable this every time you boot your mac they don't even have it set up so that it remembers to stay on oh well that's annoying this, that's one of the things in their faq they they said quote if you have, oh, I'm, I'm, they, oh they, they, they said the beta must be re-enabled after every reboot. So uh, anyway, so I wanted to let people know this is there. Um, it's, it's, you know, pre-release. You do. I, I wanted to make sure people knew that they have to turn it on again every time they use it. That is, every time they boot their Mac. But for people who are interested in privacy for DNS, this is available. So it's like okay, um, you know it it uh, it is what it is, and uh, an interesting service that OpenDNS offers. I guess if you're a Mac user, you're already using OpenDNS. You might give this a try, um, and and see what you think. Do you have any idea why it's only for Mac? It seems like an odd way to go. Yeah, maybe they're Mac people and they just haven't gotten yeah, around to doing it for Windows. It might be that the Mac platform being a little more easy to maneuver. Um, well, for example, getting this into Windows might be more difficult. I, I just, you know, don't know. So let's move on to the uh, the new Zeus banking Trojan, which is uh, has got a nice little one-two punch. Huh. Apparently, this is this is a uh, this is not your father's Trojan. Well, Zeus is it has been a problem for. Quite a while, it's become it's become the premier um, ACH banking trojan. Meaning that it's it people downloaded into their machines by mistake, 
um, it it lives in their system, watches them doing banking transactions, and then hijacks uh, hijacks their banking credentials. So that's actually the way this thing runs. Um, what what the FBI has reported they are now seeing is that that when the the, the latest variants of the of the Zeus Trojan will will perform a fraudulent transfer in order to obtain monies from one or more individuals. And then, so that's the one part of the one-two punch. The second part is they will then launch a distributed denial-of-service attack on the banking website in order to pull the site down. The reason they do that is that this gives them a larger window of opportunity in order to get the funds moved to somewhere where they cannot be reversed. So what the way this is the, the way this normally fails that is the, the 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 bad guy's ability to transfer money completely out of um out, out of a mode where it cannot be reversed is that a the end user may notice something going on you know i mean they're they're in the process of doing their banking with the website so if the trojan gets gets the credentials and moves the money away if the if the user in doing their banking checks their balances and sees says wait a minute uh, it looks like i don't have as much money in my account as i thought well just cuz it just at that moment was transferred away so they then contact the bank and complain that there seems to be something wrong the bank pursues this and and sees that there was a fraudulent transfer and reverses the funds immediately well so what now we're seeing is that immediately after the fraudulent transfer is made a denial of service attack is launched on the bank to prevent the valid users from being able to get to the website to see that their that that their money is no longer there so it it steals their money and then crashes the site so that so that they can't tell mm-hmm. that their money has been stolen. Now, you could theoretically still call in, you know, phone banking and, and check your balance. But I guess the idea is people don't do that as often as they might check online. And that, that delay is, is all the bad guys need? Well, yes. But also, it's one thing to for the site to affirmatively tell you that you have a zero balance. And it's another thing for you just not to be able to get to the site. You know, because, I mean, the Internet's still a little flaky enough that if someone, you know, tries to use the website and it's, it doesn't respond, they think, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll come back later and try it again. They're not you know, immediately some- going to pick up the phone and say, oh, something's wrong. I better I better call in and check my balance. They're just going to assume that their their Internet connection is down. Exactly. Like, yeah. you know, that like there's something wrong with the banking website and, oh, well, they'll, they'll check it again later. Now... Okay, the other thing I picked up on in doing a little bit more background on this was an interesting new trick that the bad guys are using because they have the problem of of transferring the money somewhere and then and then what do they do with it? How do they get it 
out of reach of the banking system so that it, it can't be grabbed back. One of the one of the tricks now that's being used is that the the bad guys will contact high end luxury jewelry stores and commit to purchase um, precious stones or, for example, luxury watches that are very expensive. And they will say, um, in, they'll, they'll arrange the purchase, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, we were, we're, we're going to wire the money to you, and then we'll have some, you know, we'll have one of our people come and pick up the merchandise. And so the jewelry store says, well, yeah, that's fine. As long as we, we've wired the funds, that works. They will then transfer the money from one or more individuals who have been infected with the Zeus Trojan into a composite account and then from there to the jewelry store. Ver- they will then verify with the jewelry store that the funds are available and then one of their so-called mules will come in and pick up the physical merchandise which has now been paid for from this composite money transfer, wiring the funds into the bank, that then, you know, it's everything's been paid for. This guy then comes in, um, the so-called mule, and um, absconds with the merchandise. Then when the, the law enforcement gets involved, they realize what's gone on and will reverse the transaction, but... The jewelry store has already allowed the goods to leave its control. So that so, DDoS is there to give them time to get to the jewelry store and 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 make off with the jewels. Exactly. Wow, this is this is like a 1950s heist film. That is just amazing, and this is what's actually going on now. Yeah, uh, every I expect day. to see like uh, Frank Sinatra or, or uh, George Clooney in the movie version of the <laughs> Zeus Trojan. Right. <laughs> somebody so, should somebody should option that. So there's been, a, as you, I'm sure you've been covering this in uh, TNT, um, there's been lots of discussion about uh, this carrier IQ. Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've been looking forward to getting your perspective on this because uh, we have been we have been covering this quite a bit. For anybody who doesn't know, Carrier IQ, uh, a program that a researcher discovered uh, was existing on the phones. Sometimes it's an app, sometimes built into the operating system. And on this particular researcher's HTC phone, uh, this guy named uh, Eckhart, uh, he found that it was, uh, it seemed to be monitoring your keystrokes, the contents of text messages. Uh, turns out that it's probably not as nefarious as it looked at first. Uh, Rebecca Bass was hired by C- Carrier IQ to look at it independently. She said it's not doing any keystroke monitoring. Dan yep. Rosenberg independently looked at it, uh, and he's had a good report about what it does and what it doesn't do. Uh, so so what do we need to worry about here, Steve? Well, so, so okay, um, I, this reminded me, the whole episode reminded me of exactly what originally happened with the first discovery of spyware, and Leo likes to remind people that I'm the person who coined the term spyware, uh, and Catchy, it was, by as, the way. Good job on you know, that. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, it was, I, I remember it was something that I learned about had been installed in my machine without my knowledge or permission. Um, and this is, I mean, this is like old school. This is a long time ago. 
um, I learned about it because I was beta testing Zone Alarm, which at the time was the the very it was the only personal firewall that did outbound monitoring. I used Zone Alarm for years. It was a great firewall and a free. Yep, yep. And um, it was like two days after installing it, I got a pop up saying that, and I don't and the details of the of the. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, Oriate was it said Oriate A U R E A T E was the 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 software that had been installed in my machine. Well, this was this was not malware technically. This was so-called advertising software, mm-hmm. which had been inst- which had been brought in by uh, by WinZip or or or. Zip for Windows, or one of it was one of the Zip utilities, um, and and I had uh, installed that. This thing had been installed without my knowledge or permission, and it was then monitoring what I did and sending this information back. And the Zone Alarm firewall caught it doing that. So you know, immediately it's like, wait a minute, what do I? You know, what is this? And th- this again was that this was a very very early piece of software. So I made this news public, and it brought a firestorm of reaction down on this Oriate company and on the people who were carrying this into people's machines. Well, so this is very similar. To to the to the same thing that has happened because the question is is it the handset makers' fault for this being there is it the carriers' fault uh, you know like T-Mobile or AT and T well and, and even Apple has this installed on 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 their iOS devices well there's reference to it in iOS five and they say they're going to get rid of it they're, they're, they don't use it anymore and they're just going to get rid of all trace. Right. In, in, in an update to iOS, it'll be it'll be completely removed. So executives at Carrier IQ have said that their monitoring software gathers information about web usage as well as when, where, and to what numbers calls are made and text messages are sent, but not the content of text messages. I did see something that indicated they are capturing URLs that 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 smartphone web surfers are surfing to so that's some concern but they're also saying that you know they they care about text messages only in as much as did the message go through did the message not go through if not then what cell cell tower is the user using you know that's sort of lower level service level stuff so, so multiple class action lawsuits have been filed against Carrier IQ, uh, just as multiple lawsuits were filed against this Oriate company. People mostly are upset with you know their concern that this that that they feel no one told them this was going on. Right, this was, there was this had been installed behind their back without their knowledge and permission, and suddenly you know it's like. Wait a minute! I'm being spied on by my phone. 
And Carrier IQ and the carriers themselves are caught with their pants down here because they've been doing this for decades without anybody knowing or caring. Uh, and right. I, I, I tried to explain this on TNT yesterday. You think about your old handsets from the 90s, right? They're, they were doing all of this stuff. They were logging all of this information because the handsets were sort of considered part of the network. They weren't yours. They were a piece of equipment you used to access the network. All of this information, about, even URLs, but, but things like when a text message is sent, what, what cell tower, all of that stuff is stuff that has to be uh, part of the network. The carrier has to know it to complete your calls. They know all the phone numbers you dial too, but they have to. And so what Carrier IQ was doing is collating all of that information and providing some diagnostic tools. And so back then with feature phones being the only phones, nobody thought twice about it. Uh, right. But now smartphones are ours. They do a lot more. We, we entrust a lot more information to a smartphone, banking information, passwords, private messages that we didn't really rely on phones for in the past. But this, this software is still there in the background, uh, and it's still doing what it was always doing, is trying to collate diagnostic information. And it, it sounds from what I've read that it's not doing really, really nefarious stuff like key logging. But it is passing along a lot of information about a device that is very personal now without your knowledge. And I think that's really the big thing is that they don't make it clear what it is that it's running. And they don't give you a chance to opt out and, or opt in, either one. Right. Um, it's funny because this, if, what you just said reminds me of the model and the example that I've often used with personal computers. Um, it used to be the case that, that people would say, oh, you know, I don't worry about my PC security because I don't do anything important on my PC. I just use it for surfing the web and, you know, doing email, you know, but, th but that's all. And my response had always been, well, today that may be true, but the world is going to be pushing you towards more use more comprehensive use of that same device. And what will happen is that your bank will start encouraging you to do your banking online. And so there'll be some creepage of your use in a direction where security really does matter. And if you never bothered to give your machine a good password, then you slowly start using it for more critical things, you'll then you you're beginning to increase your exposure over time, and so so it's really necessary if you if you say deliberately, I don't care about the security of this device to be sure that you never do anything with it where you do care about the security, even in that instance. Yeah, it's, I, I I think that Carrier IQ probably isn't the bad guy here. I think they're just behind the times. Uh, they did a really bad move by trying to use a cease and desist copyright infringement notice oh, yes. uh, to shut down Eckhart when he first put out his response. They've, they've since scrambled to try to do the right thing, but it's too late now. Uh, and, but but they, the issue really revolves on uh, should they change with the times and should they make it clear uh, sprint actually has in their terms of service that they can collect this kind of information they just don't disclose how they're going to collect it that it's being collected all the time it's it's not satisfactory to me uh that it's disclosed as well as it should be so i i, I think that i think carrier iq uh is is really trying 
to figure out how to do the right thing at this point, but they're going to have to change the way their software works. Uh, I, to satisfy me, they're going to have to say, look, this is going to be removable. Uh, we're going to have to alert people that we're collecting this information up top and what information we're collecting and give you a chance to opt in and say, yeah, I would like, I would like the network to work better and I would like to contribute to that uh, as long as I know that the contents of my text messages, the contents of, of my emails are not being collected by somebody. I personally am okay with them coll- collecting all the information they already know because they have to know it to make the network work and using that to be diagnost- to do better diagnostics. Well, uh, what I think will happen is that all smartphone users will get an education about what their carriers are collecting. I think, I think that that's been part of the problem. As you say, this has been going on in one form or another forever. And that as, as, our, as our platforms evolved, they were able to, to enhance the, and, and increase the sophistication of software running out at that endpoint. And so, so certainly everyone would agree that the contents of our email and the contents of our text messages should not be spied on or spyable by some random third party. As, as, you, as you pointed out, Tom, this stuff all goes through the carrier. I mean, the carrier knows about the content of our text messages. Yeah. Because, you know, text messages are not encrypted they, and they're a service of the underlying platform. So, so it was this, this idea that some third party that we weren't aware of was involved. And so, so I think that, that, that over time, it will become, it, it'll just become understood that, that there may be some subcontracting going on that the carriers use for collecting this data that it's it comes with the territory and it, it, it's about it, it's about cell towers and and service level things not content level things right and that that people it, it'll just be you know it we we still may not read the fine print but there'll be as a result of all this kerfuffle Sort of like, oh, yeah, I heard about them, and it ended up not being a big deal, and that's just what happens with smartphones. But I'll, uh, let me be clear. I want the ability to turn this thing off at a moment's notice if I decide, you know what, Carrier IQ, I heard that they're starting to, to collect some things that I don't like. I want to have control over it as the user. I want to be able to opt out of it. And right now, the only way to opt out of it is to, to install a new ROM on your phone, and that, that's not acceptable. Yeah, I don't think opting out will be available. I think this. I think your carrier will say, if you want service from AT and T, this is part of the service. I mean, this is it's built into the phone. It's it's what they require in order to offer their their service. I doubt that 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 turning it off will be an option. Well, you may be right about that. They can't. They in some cases they do it as an app instead of built into the operating system. So they have the capability of doing it, whether they will or not. That's a whole different question. Right. Uh, let's move on to we've got some miscellaneous. Jacob Nielsen uh, has weighed in on the Kindle Fire and other 7-inch tablets. What, what does the master of web usability have to say? Yeah, well, first of all, for, for people who don't know his name or who recognize his name, and you obviously do, Tom, uh, this guy, J-A-K-O-B-N-I-E-L-S-E-N, 
um, has long he's she's written like some of the classic texts on 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 website usability and and accessibility. He's regarded as as, as a major UI guru. Um, <clears throat> I um, in my Twitter stream recently, SGGRC, I tweeted the link to a very nice review that he did, sort of a usability study. Um, only a small number of people, but he, he felt like he got some very good results from it. Um, so you, you can just go twitter.com slash SGGRC and uh, you can easily find the, the shortened link to his review where I refer to this. And I just wanted to share with our users the upshot of of him looking at this was to conclude that seven inch tablets were too small for for convenient use of non-mobile websites so websites that had been designed for mobile screen sizes were fine but just wandering around the web in general a seven inch screen was unusable for non-mobile websites, whereas the iPad or a larger screen, a 10-point-something-inch screen, was large enough for non-mobile websites. So I just sort of thought that was an interesting conclusion uh, for them to come from that I wanted to share. Yeah, the Kindle Fire I found is really good for reading books. I feel like it's light, you know, it's lighter than an iPad, uh, but it's got a nice, uh, nice resolution, and it's kind of paperback size. Uh, but I have, I have not found it to be great for anything else. Not, yep. not for me yet. Uh, and maybe I haven't I've been on a plane with it yet. So we'll see if I like it for video. I have a feeling I want that bigger screen. I want that ten inch screen yeah. when I'm watching video. Yeah. Um, but also on your your Twitter uh, stream, people should follow SGGRC. Uh, great review of current e-ink readers. Yeah, there was a, a very nice review from the guy who who developed Instapaper. So he's 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 well known and been been around for a while. Um, uh, what I liked was that he took um, multiple brands of e-ink readers. And really did a very nice side-to-side comparison. So anybody who's been wondering among the various e-ink readers, that is to say the reflective display, not the the LCD tablets. Right, we're not talking uh, about the Fire or the Nook Color or any of those here. Precisely. Uh, those those readers that are e-ink and, and monochrome, uh, he looked across them all. And I'll just give you his his, his result was that he liked, of all of them, the smaller Amazon Kindle the best. That is what is now just being called the Kindle, not the Touch mm-hmm. and not the so-called Kindle keyboard, but just the little Kindle. The one and that's uh, $79 if you buy the ad-subsidized one. It's super cheap. Precisely. And my feeling is that it's actually a little small. That they, they're, it's, sort of, it's sort of tough to hold it because there's no, like, paddle area at the bottom, which I enjoy on my Kindle 3 or the so-called Kindle keyboard, I sort of like that better. Um, I mean, it's, it's nice because you can really put it in your pocket and carry it around. So um, it, it, is, it is small. I almost think they undershot on, on size end. And speaking of Twitter followers, yesterday I crossed the 25,000 followers mark. 
So, Congratulations. That's fantastic. For all of our all, all of the podcast listeners who have have are following me on Twitter, I wanted to just send a thank you. I tweeted a thank you this morning, uh, telling everyone that I will continue posting important and useful tidbits whenever I'm able to. Well, here, yeah, we've got two examples here: the Jacob Nielsen stuff, the reviews on e-readers that you could have found out. There's, I follow. I'm one of the twenty five thousand, Steve. <laughs> I, I follow. It's great, great stuff in that feed. Well, right. and I did have a nice, uh, a nice note from a Paul Smith, who uh, actually this is a different kind of testimonial than I, I normally post. He said, "Spinrite saves movie night," um, hmm. and he's in Ipswich uh, in the UK, and he said, "Hi, Steve and the support team. Sunday night is movie night for us. However, the disk drive in our NAS, our network attached storage box." started going AWOL. So I took it out and connected it to a PC and ran my copy of Spinrite. First use since I ordered and purchased it back in 2010. Anyway, at about 16%, I got a divide overflow error and a red screen. This being Sunday, I thought that was it. But no, an email to GRC on to, to to GRC support was returned in minutes and changing a setting in the BIOS as recommended by Greg completely cured the problem within the hour Spinrite had completed its magic and movie night was back on <laughs> of course the drive then worked perfectly thanks steve for the great software and you can pass my thanks to Greg McIntyre from your support team. And also thanks for the Security Now show. So I just want to let people know that they're getting something for their money when they purchase our software. We really are here, maybe not 24-7, but, but at least 7. Yeah, yeah. Well, you save movie night. That's, a, yes. that's important. That's, that's the kind of stuff people... Feel much better about when they, you know, when it's it's sort of like, gosh, this is something I was really looking forward to, something I really enjoy. I didn't think I was going to get a response. Good customer service. That's just as important as the good product. Exactly. That that is what you're buying. All right, let's uh, take a break and thank uh, one of our sponsors for Security Now, Newegg.com, the place on the Internet to shop for tech. Uh, this episode brought to you by Newegg. Now you can trade in your used gadgets on Newegg with a, for a Newegg gift card. They have a Newegg trade site sponsored by Gazelle, and, of course, you've probably heard about Gazelle. Uh, if you haven't heard of Newegg... You're, what, really? You, have, you, you must have heard of Newegg. But they, they are the leading online retailer, which prides itself on their shopping experience, the rapid delivery, great customer service uh, with over 84,000 products. It's always the first stop for me when I'm looking for a product to find out, you know, is it available? How much? What's the, uh, what's the if, how fast is the shipping going to come? Go to Newegg, award-winning website. They equip their customers with information to help them make decisions. You don't just get what's there. You get detailed specs. Uh, you get how-tos on installation. Um, there's 1.9 million customer reviews, uh, and they don't just go and throw away all the bad ones. You get the good and the bad in there as well. High-res photo galleries, 
Newegg, uh, now, as we mentioned, has a trade insight powered by Gazelle. So when you go to Newegg and you're like, gosh, I really need that new MP3 player, or I need a hard drive or some RAM upgrade, you can trade in your old gadgets so you can afford the new stuff. Gadgets in 20 product categories, over 200,000 unique items. Get rid of that old digital camera you don't use anymore. Maybe that GPS device that you've got a little ca- gathering dust in the corner. Or maybe you want to upgrade to a new e-reader. Get rid of the old one. Uh, iPhones are going between $122 and $163 iPod Touch 4G going for 107 bucks. The Motorola Droid Bionic 290 bucks. Kindle 3 is going for 43 bucks. Uh, but Giselle said, it, you know what? That's that it, it may not sound like much, but uh, it, it's held its value over a long time. That's the Kindle 3 3G plus Wi-Fi. You can still get 43 bucks for that. Uh, so check it out. Round up all your used gadgets for your home or office. Go to Newegg.com slash trade. See what gadgets are worth today. Newegg gives you a gift card for the cash value of your electronics. Uh, and then you can use it to buy all the other good stuff that you're shopping for on Newegg anyway. Go to Newegg.com slash trade and check it out. As Newegg says, take it from a geek. Newegg.com slash trade. We thank them for their support of Security Now. All right. We got a dozen questions today for listener feedback number 132. You ready to dive in, Steve? You betcha. Let's go with number one from Jason J.W. in Nacogdoches. I used to have a, a union organizer friend of mine lived in Nacogdoches. Uh, he says, Steve, any recommendations for PC performance diagnostic software? My boss complains the PC I recently built is slowing down. Thanks. Huh. Okay. So um, uh, this was something that was tweeted, interestingly enough. Uh, I wanted to mention that peop- I do kind of keep an eye on my Twitter stream. So if someone wants to mention at SGGRC... Um, I will normally see that. Uh, I get a lot of great tips from our listeners, and uh, so that's a really a great source of information, which I very much appreciate. So I thought about Jason's question, um, saying that a, a recently built machine was slowing down, and he was asking me, you know, like, as, as, as you read, recommendations for PC performance diagnostic software. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm aware of a number of different things that have been around. Um, for example, uh, there was something I ran maybe six months ago that that did an audit of my machine's startup so that I was able to see what was going on as, um, as the system was starting. Um, but I, I sort of pushed myself back a little bit. And I said, you know, um, one thing that that almost anything you install does is make a mention of itself right in the control panel under add remove programs and so what i normally do when i first encounter a system which is running sluggishly is i rather than installing any other kind of third-party stuff i just jump over to the control panel and look at add remove programs and it's very revealing to see how much crap frankly a machine can acquire over, you know, in someone else's hands in a couple of months. There are some people who just seem unable to resist installing things. And very often, the, these are things that are installed once. So many programs now that you install want some some time from your system when they're starting up. They want to run in the background. They want to run a chunk of themselves in, in the background. I'll, I'll see that, you know, like, for example, things I rarely use – like for example, Microsoft Office Suite will will like have a like a quick startup thing that it's running 
um, whenever it starts up. And it's like, okay, you know, do I really need all of that? So I would recommend before you do anything else, just go to the control panel, look at add, remove programs and scroll through, um, maybe sit down with the person whose machine this is and say, okay, when was the last time you used that? And you really need that? And what about that one? Um, very often, these are things they installed once and then forgot about, haven't, ever, haven't even used since. And just getting rid of all that junk uh, can really make a difference. So I, I think that's what I would recommend is just use, just go through and, and look at, you know, sort of challenge them for the things that are installed. Do they yeah. really need those things? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I, 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 can, I can add a little bit to that, which is you don't really need software to do diagnostics so much as, as, as a good checklist of inspections. And that's, that, that's what you're talking about. MS, you know, look at MS config too, see what's starting up. Because uh, that can slow stuff down, and uh, yep. I, I just reinstalled Winderstat uh, recently for the first time in a long time, which goes through and uh, shows you graphically what's taken up space on your hard drive, uh, yep. which is another good way to find out. You know, because when you see that list, you may they they show you the the size of the program, but seeing that graphic layout, it really says, "Oh wow, I've got I've got a lot of stuff in that directory. Maybe if I just clean that out yeah. uh, and then do a defrag, that that helps. Good stuff." Uh, question number two comes from Cyber Admin Dude in Montreal. He wants to know how to stress the importance of security to noobs. Uh, he says, I am a catch-all server programmer guy for a small company that runs a website. I was wondering what the easiest way to stress the importance of good practices to people less in the know is. When I talk about them, I get blank stares or NyQuil-like reactions <laughs> to my rants. Uh, the person who is my commander isn't really tech-savvy either, but knows the buzzwords, LOL. So I don't have the influence slash power to make changes myself. We have passwords like apples for our PHP admin page and FTP passwords like workus3r. Is there a website with a collection of testimonials or horror stories I can send to my coworkers to help them understand the threats? So, okay. Um, uh, um, I, I like this question because it's one that I see a lot in various forms. We have our listeners who who understand what's going on with security understand that the fundamental importance that is that that security plays in today's world and and so many people are frustrated with people who just don't give it a thought and 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 they say you know exactly as cyber admin dude does is how do i get this across how do i explain that this is really important and that the 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 best advice that I have for people is is try to connect the notion of cybersecurity to aspects of security that people do understand, and that's real world security, physical security. You know, would you deliberately leave your front door unlocked? Would you deliberately walk away from your car with the windows rolled down? While there's stuff in your car that would be valuable to somebody else that that might be available for stealing. I, I think that the problem that that people have with cybersecurity, not understanding what's really going on, is th- that it's it's too virtual. It's it's you know, they just don't think of it 
in the same way they think of physical security. We've talked about how no security is perfect. Yes, locking your front door doesn't prevent people from breaking your windows, but locking your front door is better than not locking your front door. And closing your windows is better than leaving them wide open. So, so you know, I've, I've, I've sort of I've thought about this a lot. And I think that the, the best advice is to, to, try to try to relate this to security that people do understand. And everybody understands physical security, you know, real world security, security that you grow up, you know, gradually acquiring an awareness and an appreciation and an understanding of the importance of um, over time. And and try to explain that, you know, the same issues in the real world do affect the virtual world. And so it's important to take these precautions. Just leaving your windows down doesn't mean someone's going to steal from you. It just, it means they can much more easily. Yeah. Similarly, using a password like apples doesn't mean somebody is going to crack into your uh, PHP admin pages, but it means they can much more easily. It's exactly analogous. In fact, if you want to look for horror stories, I would say just look at the news. Pretty much every week, you'll find two or three. And, and I, I would suggest using those in conjunction with what Steve's saying, which is like, would you leave your windows open? And if someone did break into your and steal your car because you left your windows open, how would you feel? Do you want to be that guy who, ha- who left the password as apples and then a hacker breaks in and it makes national news like this water pump that allegedly got hacked? Do you want to be that guy? You know, try to, try to relate that, that sort of like you will be and you're, you're, what's your defense? going to be oh i tried to secure anything no right yeah all right uh question number three john palmer in washington dc has a question about carrier iq a lot of people have a lot of questions about carrier iq uh on december 1st he tweeted carrier iq not a no wait 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 on december 1st i oh he says steve on december 1st you tweeted carrier iq not a root kit it's commonly installed carrier feedback firmware for monitoring handsets comes with the territory but he says it clearly is a root kit isn't it so what is it a root kit or it's not a root kit why isn't it a root kit well okay so it it was interesting how much controversy this stirred up because i i was seeing people using the term root kit actually people were were sending me in my twitter feed all of this commentary about carrier iq being a root kit and and so i tweeted it's not a root kit and and that generated still more controversy so I, I thought i would just take this moment to say to our listeners to remind people a root kit is not software that you don't like i mean okay a root kit is software that you don't like but it's not defined as software that you don't like a root kit <laughs> is something that 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 a malicious third party installs in your machine through a vulnerability and it's not something that your OS vendor approves of not something that that you know that you approve of it it's it's third it's it's it was maliciously installed 
So we now understand that even though people may not like the idea that there is this monitoring technology which was offered by a third party, it is it's not a rootkit because it was there when you got the phone. I mean, it's it is somewhere in the in the license agreement. It says it's going to be there, and it, it may be it may have been hidden from you deliberately. Um, in some cases, that's so that it's not mixed in with you with the applications that you see, and you're able to run and 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 install and remove and 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 stop running and so forth. But it's also you know it's part of the firmware. So I just wanted to draw that distinction. Rootkit, again, Rootkit isn't defined as stuff you wish you you wish wasn't there. <laughs> you know, Rootkit is is malware which was installed and hides itself. So yes, Carrier IQ is is pre-installed and hiding itself, but that's not a Rootkit. And, and does a rootkit have to have some sort of kernel association? It generally does, although that's normally, I mean, you know, root means in, in Unix parlance, you know, uh, God-level rights, full rights to the system, and and it hides itself by using kernel hooks in order to prevent itself from being found. So, so... This is just sort of, you know, the carrier IQ isn't a rootkit in that sense. I mean, it, it is it is down in the OS, in in the kernel, monitoring what we're doing, but with full knowledge yeah. of the provider of of the handset. And the, that's the difference. Sony rootkit was not, uh, Microsoft was not aware that the Sony rootkit was inhabiting Windows. Right. Web791 puts it well. He says, this is more like a root canal. Just something painful that you don't want there. That's pretty good. But I like the dentist that. knows that he's doing it to you. <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, well, let's... And, and, and you're also paying him for it. Yeah, that's so. true. And you're paying you're you're paying the carrier for for your phone too. Right. All right, I'll take a quick break and thank our last sponsor, uh, Carbonite. Are your files backed up right now? Or you ask be, I, you, I'm, you don't have to tell me. Be honest with yourself because they should be backed up in about – well, they should exist in about three places. They should be on your computer. They should be on a local backup somewhere under your control. And then they should be on a remote backup that is somewhere away from you. So if something happens to the place you're in, you still got your files. And that's what I use Carbonite for. Uh, Carbonite backup is automatic. Uh, it's continual. It monitors changes in the file system, and when a change happens, it backs it up, and it's kept safely off-site. That's the key here, away from a computer crash or a virus uh, or fire or theft. Uh, really be protected. You need online backup from Carbonite. Your files are uh, available all over the Internet, too. It's kind of a nice side benefit. If you want to get at your files and you don't have your computer there, you can access them on an iPad, on an iPhone, uh, with their free apps. You get unlimited backup for your PC or Mac for $59 a year. You cannot beat that price. But actually, free beats that price, which is what you could try it for. Go to Carbonite.com and enter that offer code SECURITYNOW, and you will get two bonus months free 
if you decide to buy. Uh, and you get a free trial. Be sure to sign up for that free trial from the homepage, and then you'll get two months free if you decide to keep it. You don't have to use a credit card to try, try it for free. Just go there, Carbonite.com. Use that offer code security now if you decide to sign up. And we thank them for their support of security now. Let's get to question number four. Aaron in Bend, Oregon is not alone. He's baffled by bandwidth. So many people are. He says, hi, Steve. I'm confused by bandwidth. Everywhere you look, the only measure you find is megabits per second. Is it really that simple? Does that mean that my office of 30 people with a 1.5 megabit per second second connection is truly the same as my home DSL connection of 1.5 megabits per second? Shouldn't there also be a capacity measurement? I'd like to think that the office connection is like a multi-lane freeway with a speed limit of 65, and my home is like a rural two-lane road with a speed limit of 65. Both have the same speed, but different capacities. Could you clarify? Well, that's an interesting analogy. Yeah, and is. It's a which is a little bit confused, um, but we'll 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 have some fun here with some visuals. Um, we recently on the podcast talked about the way bandwidth is throttled. That is, um, I think it was a Q and A maybe either two weeks or four weeks ago. Somebody said, you know, how is it that bandwidth is differing for different users? If all the packets on the internet are moving between routers at the same speed, which is the case, you know, the, the routers out on the main internet backbone are treating everybody the same. It is the, the so-called the last mile, uh, which is the term used for the, the ISP to you connection where the ISP is hooked into the main backbone of the internet, pulling, able to to transact traffic with all of the other major providers on the internet. But then your your ISP is sort of your portal, your connection out onto that super high capacity highway. So, so what your ISP does is is limit the sort of the average speed that you're able to move traffic to and from the internet now the reason that this this wide lane multi-lane freeway analogy where all the cars are moving at 65 miles an hour versus a rural two lane road with a, with with the same speed limit the reason that's sort of confusing is that the way to think of bandwidth would be in cars per second, for example. So if, if all the cars are moving at 65 miles an hour, but you've only got one lane in each direction on a rural road, then that's going to limit the number of cars per second that are able to travel. But if you had a multi-lane freeway where each lane was moving at 65 miles an hour, because now you've got parallel lanes, the number of cars per second is much higher on a freeway, which actually is why freeways work. Well, and, and so, so in other words, the miles per hour in this analogy is equivalent to the speed of light. 
Because all, yes. all your bits are moving at the – well, and maybe not on, on, on copper. But, but essentially, the bits are mo- moving the same speed all the time. Right. Right. And, and so, so we have this notion of packet rate where an ISP limits you to a certain packet rate. That is the number of packets per second you're able to move. The packets themselves may, lo- may move very quickly. In fact, the actual packet – the actual rate at which the bits move would be the same for a low bandwidth cable modem user and a high bandwidth cable modem user. It's just that the high bandwidth cable modem user gets more packets per second where the actual packet rate is the same. And now finally, stepping back and looking exactly at what Aaron was talking about with his office connection at one and a half megabits in his home connection. What what really happens is if you were to monitor a single user's one and a half megabits connection, it would be very bursty. That is, you know, he clicks a link and that sends the link off. And then the page comes back. And then he sits there and looks at the page, scrolls a bit, clicks a link. Again, that happens. So he may have a one and a half megabit connection, but he's not using it. That is his his utilization of it because he's just one person is probably relatively low. But if you put his 30 person office behind that same one megabit connection, you're going to see it is saturated by those 30 people. So now you've got 30 people all clicking links and probably waiting a little bit longer. That is, their traffic is is like lined up one behind each other, really packing that one and a half megabit connection much more densely than Aaron sitting by himself at home. So even though both both situations, a 30-person office and a one-person home, may have a one and a half megabit connection, it's the and this is what he talked about when he talked about capacity it's actually the the utilization level of that of that link at that speed is probably much higher when you've got 30 people all fighting each other for access to the internet over that same relatively low bandwidth channel compared to 30 people essentially if they were all trying to use it all the time they would be one and a half megabits divided by 30 would be the you know their shared level of access the good news is it it can function pretty well because most users who are not just downloading monster files but interactive users are inherently bursty in their access they click a link get a page Look at it, click a link, get a page, look at it. And that's the kind of access that 30 people could share just by sort of interleaving their access. Well, and this is why bandwidth caps are not bandwidth caps. They're data usage caps. And there's been some good studies recently that show that they don't do anything to alleviate congestion. And it fits right into your your analogy. Uh, A high data usage person, someone that's going to run up against that 250 gigabyte cap from Comcast, for instance, is just someone who drives a long way on the road. 
He spends a he spends a lot of miles on the road, right? Right. But he doesn't contribute in any relevant way to the congestion. The congestion happens when you have a lot of cars trying to use that highway, and you you reach the capacity. Uh, and I, I've got the names here: uh, Herman Wagter and Benoit Felton talked uh, an unnamed DSL company into allowing them to look at their customer data in five minute increments, and it bore this out. The, the so-called bandwidth hogs who use a lot of data did not contribute in a, any relevant way to the actual congestion that the DSL provider was experiencing. Right. And it's because of that bursty way that things happen that you're talking about. It's, yep. it's just it's numbers. It's sheer, sheer numbers of people who, uh, who use the service. Yeah, it would be like, uh, you using your analogy, it would be like if a huge number of people wanted to only drive one exit on the freeway. Well, they still would have a problem, even if they're only going to one exit. It's not how far they go. It's how many of them are trying to go per unit of time. On that same stretch of road. Exactly. All right. uh, Question five from Kevin O'Dell in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Wants to know how he can test router guest network security. Uh, First, he wants to thank you for security. Now he really looks forward to every week and has never missed an episode. He says, how can you test guest networking is properly segmenting the networks? I know you mentioned the Airport Extreme does it properly. I recently purchased a D-Link DIR 655 router, and I've had a lot of problems using AirPlay between my iPhone and my Apple TV, too. Recently, a friend was at my house and said, cool, I can see your Apple TV. I knew immediately there was something wrong with the router since he was on the guest network and the Apple TV should not be visible. I did a firmware upgrade and still the same thing. I turned off the guest networking and AirPlay works perfectly. I went through three levels of tech support and they finally passed it on to the engineers at D-Link and they still can't explain it. I just wanted to make your listeners aware, don't trust guest networking unless you know for a fact that it's working properly. So that's a a great piece of wisdom. Um, one of the things that I hear frequently as the as the um, person who offers shields up, which has been used for <laughs> untold number of years by people to check their security, what, what what I'm hearing all the time is they'll believe they're secure. That they'll believe their ports are closed, or that they that they know the way their system is configured, they'll check it with Shields Up, and Shields Up will find a port which is open that they were unaware of, and so it's really the case that testing is the only way to know for sure what's going on. Now, I did a little bit of research on on D Link in particular, since that's what what Kevin was referring to. And there is a setting on the guest network configuration, which you have to explicitly disable, which allows routing between the guest network and the the main home network. So you absolutely want to make sure that's turned off. If not, then the router will allow traffic to cross between guest and and main network. And even so, you want to test. The way to test is as simple as just trying to ping the router. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, try try to ping the machine on on either side that, that are in these networks which are supposed to be isolated. You're able, uh, take take a look at the IP, for example, that 
a, um, a, a machine has been assigned over on your home network. And then from a machine on the guest network, just use the ping command, open up a command window and type P-I-N-G space and the IP address of the other machine. See whether you get a response. Um, you hope not to if, if that machine is not accessible and you want your networks to be isolated. And I would just say, um, if you're using a guest network, may, regardless of what router you have, look carefully at those settings and make sure that the router has been instructed to isolate those networks. Because it makes sense that there would be the option, because in some cases, you, you, want, you might want your guest, for example, to have access to your Apple TV device. In other cases, you definitely don't. Question number six, Luis in Spain has an interesting observation about packet TTLs. That's time to live. Uh, He says, hello, Steve, about the TTL or hop count. I want just to inform that when a packet goes through a MPLS VPN for a customer, the provider doesn't touch the TTL. So a lot of times there is not a TTL change. Most packets have more hops than we can see on the trace route. Just to inform you of that. Kind regards, Luis. I loved that. Um, it's something that we had never talked about before. Um, in our, you, you were talking about the how the internet works. Yeah, series. yeah, I love that series. And and one of the things we covered carefully was this notion of of the TTL, the so called time to live, which as as Luis mentioned has been renamed hop count in the IPv6 spec. They wanted to make it clear that it wasn't a time measured in seconds mm-hmm. or, or any temporal sense. It was actually decremented per router um, hop and so simply called hop count. But what's what the point he makes, and it's a really good one, is when you are in a virtual private network tunnel, then your traffic, as it moves from router to router, the the external tunnel packets will have their TTLs decremented. But the packets moving through the tunnel don't see router hops at all. So there will be no TTL decrementation for tunneled packets. That is, packets that are being carried by the VPN tunnel, which... It's something I had never mentioned before, and I thought that was a neat observation. So if you if you were, for example, to do a trace route from a point to another point, not through a VPN, you would see every hop count shown by trace route that the, the, that the packets made. By comparison, if you did a, the same trace route, but some portion of of the transit was carried by VPN, then you would see none of the of the of the TTL decrementation or the IPs of the routers, which a trace route would normally show you, thus tracing your route, until your packet emerged from the other end of the tunnel, then made any additional hops it needed to to get to its destination. So you are, in fact, blinded by the tunnel. They don't get seen. I thought that was just a very cool observation. That means it's working. 
Yes. <laughs> That's what that yeah, means. Exactly. <laughs> Christopher S. Bates in Central Valley, California, asks about special characters and passwords. He says, I've been catching up on your podcast here in the last few weeks. And remember you mentioning a problem with some sites disallowing special characters and usernames and passwords. Uh, That's one of my bugaboos, too. Mm. I completely agree with you that this is horrible practice. I have noticed, though, and tried to get changed, that my bank follows this practice for logging into their customer web portal. I have reported this as being an issue many times to their online suggestion box slash email system, but it has never been corrected. I understand that this is probably something that I shouldn't worry about, considering they do enforce other security measures, but it is something I feel should be enforced on all sites and systems, especially those dealing with financial institutions. Do you have any thoughts on this situation or any suggestions on how I may get them to change their policy? And you got it. Want to keep reading? Well, okay. I wasn't sure if we were. T- he says, "I will yeah. left this in case you don't want to read it over the air." I'm talking about Chase Banking. I just wanted to make it clear to you: this is a large institution, not a small credit union. Yep. I thought we ought to put Chase's feet to the fire. All right, in Chase. This, you've heard it here. This, yeah. Um, okay. So we've talked about this before, and since we last did, I verified some of the rumors I had heard. The reason. This seems to afflict banks annoyingly is that what the way the web evolved was that, unfortunately, web-based front ends were put on in front of existing old school mainframe banking backends. Aha. And so, I mean, it is it is slipshod and it is sloppy and there's no excuse for it, but there is an explanation for it. So, so I don't mean to be excusing this behavior at all, merely understanding and explaining it. And so it is because once upon a time, the, the login technology for mainframes wasn't very secure. And they it only allowed alphanumeric passwords, and so what happened was that exactly that technology was just sort of pushed out onto the internet, so that users are logging in in the same way over the internet that they once logged in directly at a mainframe terminal. Now, there's nothing that would have prevented. A, a much more sophisticated and secure front end to provide a se- essentially separate web accounts, which would then have an identity to the mainframe so that users could log in with all kinds of, you know, extra security, multi-factor authentication technology that the back end didn't ever need or think to support. And then... If all that succeeded, that would then log them in using old school and private alpha-only login so that they had to authenticate with a much more secure front end. That's not what happened. And that's why we keep seeing banking institutions having among the worst web-facing login security of any. It's because of, of the legacy of mainframe login that just got surfaced out onto the web page. So um, the bad news is, I don't think, no matter how many times Christopher 
and any of our other listeners complains, we're going to see any change. It will it will end up being a legislative requirement imposed by law. At some point, they will say minimum password length and large character set must be supported and they must be case sensitive and so forth. It, that that will it will be that kind of of legislation which finally enforces banking institutions to say, well, we're going to have to spend some more money. They just don't want to spend the money. Yeah, they don't anyone, wanna... anyone could do it, but we yeah. got to make them do it. They don't, they don't want to spend the money rewriting all that stuff. My credit union may not have a fancy iPhone app, but they allow non-alphanumeric characters in my hey. password. So that's that's why I like a credit union. Yeah, but, and he, he, he says, you know, Chase Banking doesn't, yep. but, you know, it, it, but a credit union, some small credit union, often does. Because they don't have that legacy. That's, right. that's the reason. Question number eight, uh, listener requesting anonymity, uh, or however you pronounce that, shares the inconvenient truth about Apple's app vetting. Uh, here we go. He says, every so often I hear you talking about how the apps in the Apple App Store are somehow more secure because they've been vetted by Apple. On first glance, this appears to be true. Apple does some vetting for each app. However, the truth is a little different. It's trivial to get undesirable code past the vetters. As an active iOS app developer, I thought I'd share some insider information. For example, in my apps, I allow four weeks to pass from the time of submission before doing anything that might be regarded as nefarious. I even check the date at time.nist.gov to be sure I'm picking up the real date. I host a website with a simple text file on it. This contains instructions for the app, allowing me to adjust the app's activity. In my case, I use this to turn user logging off once I have enough data, but it doesn't take a genius to work out how this could be used to activate a malicious payload. In my case, I use this data to improve the apps and see which features are being used. I've got six apps in the App Store, every one of which sends data back to me behind Apple's back without Mm. Apple or my app's users knowing a thing about it. It's trivial to do, and there's almost zero chance of being caught. Great show, been a listener since the start. So, there's a perfect example of, of, of what we've talked about often, which is there, there is no way for Apple to know exactly what an app is doing. I mean, they'd have to have the source code and then have to go through and inspect the source code in detail to see what's going on. So this anonymous listener who is a developer obviously came up with a a slick way around it. He has his apps look for the date and change their behavior after a certain date. So it gets past Apple, who checks the app and uh, to, to, to see what it's doing at time of submission. And then simply, since, since the app knows it's going to have network connectivity, every so often it checks the date. And if it's been long enough, it suddenly awakens an aspect of the app that was lying dormant before. And in this case, the app pings this guy's website to obtain updated instructions about how it should behave, whether or not it should still log and where it should send the logs and so forth. So, I mean, I wanted to share this because this is, you know, this is actually happening and it's very clear there's just no way to prevent this kind of behavior. And as he says, you know, his use is not malicious, 
but it's certainly the case that it it could be. And so the the point that I made last week with Leo when we were talking about, you know, what's more secure, Apple or um Android. Or, uh, Android, exactly, is you know, none of the above. You know, maybe Apple is 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 putting a little more oversight over, you know, on um we made the point that uh, Android developers pay $25 and it's easy to be anonymous. And then they're able to dump apps day and night into the Android store. Leo countered with the fact that, yes, yeah, sure, but those apps can also be removed retroactively. So there is this. So, you know, both Apple and, for example, Google in, in the case of Android Marketplace have the ability of, of pulling things that are later found to be a problem. And my my point is install as few things as possible, you know, or or look carefully at the reputation of the companies yeah. whose apps you're installing. Now, this guy who's got who's a multi iOS app developer, he's he's doing something that Apple doesn't officially approve of because he feels Apple's policies don't give him the flexibility he needs to deliver the best app to the users. I wouldn't disagree with that. And there is no way. I mean, this is a perfect example of why it, of there is no way for Apple to guarantee the performance of the apps, no matter what they do. So any malware could do this. And it's not like we're letting any, any secrets out of right. the bag. I mean, this is clearly obvious to any developer who wants their app to work in the, who wants, you know, this kind of flexibility and freedom. There isn't any way to prevent it. Any so, computer that has network access is yep. going to be able to do this. That's, yes. that's just the way they work. These mobile devices are now where the bad guys are having the, you know, are having their fun yeah. and, and having their jollies. Chad in Omaha, Nebraska, shares an unintended consequence of VPN. He says, Dear Steve, I wanted to share with you and fellow security, now listeners, an issue I have come across. I recently placed an order through Roku. I ordered uh, my local open Wi-Fi cafe while my connection was protected by VPN, but Roku canceled my order and refunded the money. When I called to ask why, they explained that because the IP address of the computer I ordered from did not match the area of my credit card billing address, they flagged the order as fraud. I explained at great length that the order was legitimate and that I was willing to reorder from my home computer so they could see that the billing zip code matched my home IP address location. But after a week of relentless calls, Roku still refuses to let me place my order again. Perhaps my situation could be an eye-opener to another Security Now listener. Love listening to all the Twitch shows. However, without a doubt, Security Now is top of my list. Thank you, Chad. I thought that was really interesting. Um, first of all, I'm heartened from a from a fraud prevention standpoint to see that we're beginning to match up IP addresses with with physical addresses i mean there's there's always been sort of sort of an ip location technology never worked very well um, but over time especially with with things like you know google roaming around uh, pulling the the locations and mapping the locations of all of these uh, Wi-Fi lo uh, nodes, we're beginning to get much more IP location granularity. And, of course, smartphones with GPS that also have IPs, that's helping to, to create a map of where 
physically where given IPs are located. And so the idea that that's now being used as fraud prevention, I think, is very nice because it means that, you know, people in Russia are going to have a much greater difficulty using credit cards from, you know, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, but there is an unintended consequence that a VPN provides. Because if you use a VPN, it's in, and this is related to that trace routing example from a couple questions ago, your, ver your, your physical IP will not be where you're located. It will be where you're terminated, where the, it'll be the other end of your VPN tunnel. And if you are using some third-party service, like Hotspot VPN, for example, um, you're going to be connected somewhere probably remote from where you are, some distance away. And so if anyone tries to geolocate your, your IP address, they're going to see the other end of the VPN, not you. So on one hand, I say, hey, Chad, nice going that you were in an open Wi-Fi environment smart about using a VPN to protect yourself, but whoops, there was a, a side effect of that, which is you you came out on the internet with an IP of your of your VPN provider not located near where you went in to the VPN tunnel. That's you know, very cool problem. Yeah, and then hopefully co companies like Roku will get to understand that, hey, if I call yes. you and say, look, it's really me, there is a way to to, to verify that over the phone and take the order. Come on, don't just blacklist right. the guy from ever buying I, something. I, it really does seem like they, they got a little carried away with yeah. this. Uh, Marcin Siglarik in Gdynia, Poland, and I'm sure I've mispronounced your name, so I apologize, has a question about lithium-ion battery management. He says, for some time, I've been a happy smartphone user, and your advice about battery management has been really helpful. I feel much more confident about proper battery management now. Previously, I was discharging the battery all the way down and then charging it full again to avoid the memory effect from NICAD batteries, which I now know lithium-ion batteries don't have and, in fact, is bad for lithium-ion. But there's one more issue. Is it safe to leave the phone plugged in overnight? From experience, I know it will get fully charged in about three hours. Since I'm plugging it in around 8 p.m., it is fully charged by the time I go to sleep. But if I then unplug it overnight, it loses about 5 to 10% of its battery life. So in the morning, I only have about 90% remaining. On the other hand, if I leave it plugged in all night, I have full 100% in the morning. What's the best approach? Okay, so... Um Assuming that the phone or laptop is properly managing its lithium-ion batteries, and we have to make that assumption. I mean, if, you, if, if you've got a, a, a older device which is, you know, causing batteries to catch fire or, or doesn't have, I mean, as, as some have, yeah, yeah. Or, or isn't properly managing batteries, then then we're turning you into the battery manager and i and I, that's just a bad idea what lithium ion the way lithium ion batteries behave is different from the way nicads behave the way the way nicad batteries are charged is the a nicad battery voltage will increase to whatever level it's going to and then begin to decrease and so 
the and in fact there were there were like rapid NICAD chargers that the RC modelers used for a long time, which could recharge a NICAD at incredibly fast by watching that for that dip, watching for the point where the voltage began to drop. And the second it was detected to be dropping, the NICAD battery charger would stop and say, your battery is now fully charged. Lithium-ion doesn't work that way. Lithium-ion has to be, be stopped charging per cell. That is, every sick individual cell in a series-connected chain. Remember that battery itself, the word, means a multiple, you know, you have a battery of guns. That's a that's a bunch of guns, or a battery of cells, is what we refer to as a battery. So that's a that's a set of cells, individual cells connected in series. Each cell has to be monitored separately, which is why if you look at the connectors on our laptop batteries, you'll see sort of like a a, a comb of connections. And when you when you put your battery in your laptop, that comb is ma- is mating to a comb in on on the underside of of the laptop, and that th- those individual connections give your laptop's battery management access to that is visibility into each connection between the cells in that in that battery module which you've plugged in. Lithium ion has to be charged to a cutoff voltage and then stopped. So, so what is happening in in Marson's case? He's asking if it takes three hours to charge, do I need to unplug it at the end of that time? In which case, it will then switch to battery operation and discharge ten percent by morning. Or can I leave it plugged in? The answer is, we have to assume that the battery management technology is going to do its job. That is, it's going to work correctly. It's the battery manager, you're not. So leave it plugged in. What will happen is it will charge the battery, the individual cells in the battery, to their cutoff voltages and then stop at the proper point. And then those three hours or, or, or eight hours, rather, while, while he's sleeping, it will be running off of the AC, not off the battery. So it will charge it and then not drain it. It'll be running off the AC so that in the morning he, he, he disconnects it and it's fully charged because it, it, the battery was charged but has then been floating overnight, not been discharged by by not being plugged into the wall overnight. And so, you know, that's the right strategy. Trust the management technology. If the device is, is within the last five years, they've, you know, everyone has figured out how to do this right, and they are doing it right. So leaving them plugged in over the long term is fine as long as you're going to be using it. And, 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 and remember, do not discharge lithium-ion any further than you need to. Try to plug it in as much as possible. Yeah, that's what I do. I, I plug it in all the yep. time. You, yep. you know, uh, the, the Eric Duckman in the chat room pointed out you can turn it off if you're not worried about taking calls in, overnight while you're sleeping. You know, that, that's the safest way is just don't have it on at all. Yep. And then, then it's not draining anything. Uh, yep. But if it's not charged all the way, you probably 
want to plug it in so it charges up overnight, in which case you're fine. Right. Uh, we actually answered Brendan's question earlier on in the show. He wanted to know if you recommend the keyboardless Kindle or the Generation 3 keyboard version. Sounds like uh, you like the keyboardless one. Yes. Um, the reason I, I, I put the question here, though, was that so he was saying, I want to buy one and don't know what to get. My feeling is it is impossible to recommend. It'd be like someone saying, what's the best movie? Uh, Casablanca. Well, what do you like? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it is too personal. Um, I have I have all of the Kindles. I've shown them to various friends. Everyone likes a different one. Some people love the idea of touching the screen to change the page, even though the reviewers think it sort of sucks to do that. Other people want a physical button. They just like the idea of resting their hand on the button. I feel like, hey, I mean, since I've got them all, if I'm going to go down and walk on the beach, I'll put one in my pocket. I want it to be the small one. But if I want to, if I want to, like, sit at Starbucks, I want something that's easier to hold. So I like having more margin at the bottom. My my point is, I really think they're all good, and so the one you choose is personal choice. It's what you know where you know how sensitive are you to price because the 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 smallest one is the cheapest one if you get the ad supported it's only seventy nine dollars um the larger older ones are more expensive um maybe you care about touch or maybe you don't um if you're if you're going to be typing things in a lot then having either the physical keyboard or the touch keyboard would make sense over having no keyboard and having to use the up, down, left, right, you know, arrows to, to, to navigate around. So at this point, I think they're all good. And it's just a question of who are you? You know, how sensitive are you to price? How sensitive are you to size? How sensitive are you to ease of handling? Would you Do you want to have a physical button? I like physical buttons. Other people think it's cool to be able to touch the screen. There you go. And that's good advice for helping figure out which one is right once you've figured out who you are. But right. we can't figure out who you are. Right. Final and, you know, um, there are now, I think, Kindle is carried by Staples, is it? Or Best Buy? Um, uh, I know Target had Kindles. Wait, no, I'm sure it's Best Buy because Best a lot Buy of has it Kindle, to you, right? Yes, Kindle Fires were, were being purchased by uh, at, at, at Best Buy. So, Really, I would say, thanks. The good news now, even things that used to be um, like Amazon web only are now in physical retail. I would say, go to the store, go to Best Buy, hold them, feel them, and you know, and and that's the way to make your decision. Try not to do it online if you don't have to. Yeah. John Martin in New York City has our last question here. Actually, it's a tip for Mac battery management. He says, I've been listening to you and Leo since day one of Security Now, Steve. I had a quick recommendation for you regarding battery life since you've mentioned it several times in the past few episodes. It's a Mac program, sorry Windows users, called Watts from BinaryTricks.com. The program basically keeps track of your battery usage and prompts you through various stages of cycling your battery when the conditions it's watching for have occurred. It will replace your battery indicator in the top menu bar with 
with a much more robust drop-down menu that reports the condition of your battery and other bits of info. The feature that might interest you the most is on its notification screen. There are two very handy options under the long-term storage heading. The first is notify me when reaching 50% of battery charge, and the second is shut down MacBook when reaching 50% of charge. I know of no other way of getting your MacBook shut down at its optimal level of battery usage. I hope you find this little program useful. I have. And thanks for all the education you've given me since episode one. So I took a look at it, and it looks very nice. It is not free. It's free, full function for 30 days. And then the developer and author wants six ninety-five, $6.95. That's not, not terribly expensive. Is it in the Mac App Store, or you just have to go get it yourself from them? I, I don't know that it's whether it is or not. I went to BinaryTricks.com. And that this is the program that jo- that um, that the developer is selling, and uh, I looked at it. It looks very nice, and for someone who's who's like more interested in active participation with the status of his battery, uh, it looks like it really does provide lots of information. It'll it'll tell you the last time you recalibrated your battery, and and give you a pop up when it's when it's time to do a full a full depth discharge and recharge in order to recalibrate it. Um, and as, as, as you read and he mentions, uh, it'll help you uh, store your battery if you're not going to be using your battery and, and your, your MacBook for a long time. It's best to store lithium ions half-charged rather than fully charged. We, it's best to, to, to use them in a full-charge and recharge as quickly as off as quickly as possible. But to if you, if you're gonna like stick it on a shelf for a few months, take it down halfway, and then take and then um, that that that's better for long term storage. So uh, this was, I thought was a great tip, and, uh, and I have downloaded it and am using it on my laptop. You can get it at the uh, App Store. I just checked. Uh, although remember, you're giving thirty percent of the profits to Apple in that case, yeah. in exchange for the management of it through the App Store. So if you want Binary Tricks to get all the money, you go to BinaryTricks.com. Yeah. All right, that's it. Thank you, Steve. This was great. Always a pleasure to be on Security Now. Of course, Leo will be back uh, next week. But uh, don't forget, you can find uh, all the goodness that Steve does at grc.com. Things like SpinRight, things like Shields Up. Uh, anything new that you've got going on that you want to mention before we go? Well, we've got Off the Grid, the Off the Grid paper-based encryption. The printing page is all finished. Still not linked to the main menu. I just have some more work I've got to get done um, on the other pages, just document, just documentation, but that's where I'm working now. Uh, so hopefully I will be able to announce that it's available at the main menu, but you can just go grc.com slash offthegrid.htm, or actually I'll append the htm if you don't do it. So grc.com slash offthegrid, and that'll get you into the offthegrid pages, and they're all interlinked from there. I love that project. That's such a great project. Check it out, grc.com slash offthegrid. That's it for Security Now. We'll see you next time. Security.